0: But well, you guys can turn to Matthew 16. We'll be in a number of passages this morning, but that's where we'll start. Matthew 16. Uh, I turned 43 this summer, and that puts me statistically in the middle of middle age. I'm kind of right there in the middle. Um, unfortunately, this is actually typically the lowest point of happiness in a person's life. I don't know if you knew that. Sorry if you're in your 40s or 50s. Um, You're you're right there with me. Scientists have actually been studying this, studying happiness with age for average Americans. And this is what the curve looks like. It's a U-shaped curve. So statistically, throughout your life, what scientists have found is that people are happiest early in life and later in life. But right in the middle. From basically your mid-30s to your mid-50s, happiness crashes. Yay! So, <laughs> why is that? Well, there's, there's a lot of circumstantial reasons. So, kind of in the middle of life, that's when your responsibilities are highest, Costs are highest. You're working really hard. For a lot of us in this demographic, we're caring for generations in both directions. We have little kids we're caring for. We have aging parents we're caring for. We're caught in the middle. So there's a lot of circumstantial reasons, but actually, researchers have found that the root cause of this happiness curve, this bottoming out in middle age, is unmet expectations. That's why we struggle in middle age. Because all of us enter into middle age with certain expectations. You can't help but form expectations. That's part of being human. You think about the future. And you form expectations in your mind of what the future should be. And God in his grace created human beings to generally create positive expectations about the future. That's not always true. Some people struggle with pessimism, but for most people, they go through their late teens and 20s and early 30s with generally optimistic expectations of what life will be. They have optimistic hopes about marriage and parenting and career and buying that first house and getting a promotion. They look forward to these things, but Then you enter middle age and you discover that reality falls short of expectation most of the time, doesn't it? Reality rarely lives up to these optimistic expectations that we form in our minds. And so it's in middle age that we struggle with the unavoidable disappointments of life this side of heaven. So for me, this really came home on the day that my kids were born, Luke and Gracie in the hospital. Because I think like most of us, and this is primarily due to TV and movies, we we have a certain expectation of what that moment is going to be when you become a parent for the first time. So I had formed, I don't even think I had challenged this, I hadn't really consciously tried to form it. I just inherited from all these movies and TV shows what it would look like to become a dad. For the first time. And, and it seemed like an extremely positive thought. So I imagined just how amazing it would be to see your child for the first time. And you'd have friends and family celebrating with you. You'd hold your child with your wife for the first time. And, and I would probably cry, which I never do. And I thought, well, this will be worth it. And, and I was just really looking forward to that moment. It was going to be this transcendent moment of joy and love that I would remember forever. Only it didn't work out that way. About a month before our due date, Julie had a health crisis, and so we had to rush her into surgery, take the babies out, and then over the period of a a night, her health deteriorated and they had to send her to ICU, so she couldn't hold the babies at all, she wasn't there at all, you had to fully mask up and suit up to even see her, and so I was left in the room with two crying infants, not sure if my wife was going to live through the night. So that fell far short of what I had hoped for. I remember feeling, well, that is life, this side of heaven. We, even without trying, we build these optimistic expectations of what's going to come in the future. And then when it falls short, we struggle. And we feel anger. We feel sad. We, we feel like life didn't live up to what we had hoped. All of us are going to be there. Because that's how life works, this side of heaven. Realities don't live up to expectations. They will in heaven. That's the great thing about heaven. But not this side. And so we're all going to struggle with these moments when life disappoints us. And, and just statistically, that's going to happen most of the time in middle age. So that's why we struggle so much with happiness in our late 30s, 40s, and 50s. Because that's when we are confronted most clearly of all with the fact that reality doesn't live up to expectation. So what do you do when you are disappointed by life? What do you do when your reality doesn't lift up, doesn't live up to the expectations that you had hoped for? Well, we're going to answer that question by looking at Peter. Because Peter is, is actually a, a guy who dealt with unmet expectations frequently in his life. This is actually a core part of his story. How do you handle unmet expectations? I had the privilege some years ago writing a Bible study on Peter and his whole story, his whole life. And I I went back through it this last week kind of just thinking, okay, so what do I want to share with you? What do I want to preach? And there were a number of stories that I wanted to preach I was having a hard time choosing. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, a lot of these stories are the same. There's a pattern in Peter's life. A pattern where he goes from great success to abject failure in the matter of like a few verses. Like literally in minutes, he goes from hero to failure. It happens multiple times and it's always over this crisis of unmet expectations. And so what I want to do is actually share a couple different stories with you this morning that show this pattern in Peter's life of how to face unmet expectations. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16. Had you turn there, Matthew 16. We're going to look at a high point in Peter's life followed very shortly by a low point. Okay, so Matthew chapter 16. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is, is an incredible moment in Peter's life. So what's happened is by Matthew 16, Jesus has performed a lot of really amazing miracles. And, and people are seeing that and, and they're beginning to, to spread rumors throughout the country. Who, who could this man be? What could he be? And, and some people think, well, he's, he's John the Baptist, come back to life. Others say he's a prophet, he's Elijah. But Peter knows. Peter knows the truth. He is the Christ The son of the living God. Now quick clarification. Those titles at this point in time in the gospels. They're not divine titles. They don't yet mean second member of the Trinity. Jesus hadn't revealed that yet. At this point in history, Christ, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the person anointed by God to save his people. So Peter's saying, you are God's appointed savior, son of the living God. That means you are the king of Israel. It's a kingly title. Peter's saying, you are the new and better King David. Now those are surprising things to say about Jesus, because he did not look like a savior or king. He was poor. Didn't have an army. Didn't wear robes. He didn't have a crown. He didn't have great authority in the nation. So for the Jews, it was incredibly hard to imagine that this man, Jesus, a carpenter's son, could actually be savior and king. But, Jesus, but Peter saw through the appearance of things. With the help of God the Father and recognize Jesus for who he truly is. And Jesus blessed him for that. Jesus gives him a new name. This is a high point. This is LSU playing A&M with 30 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Everything looks great for them. So it did for Peter, but the game's not over. And neither is this conversation. Skip down just a little bit. Verse 21. This is literally like maybe two minutes later. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus turned, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. This is LSU after the seventh overtime. Everything's fallen apart. Peter went from hero to the devil in a matter of just a couple minutes, and it's because of expectations. So if you want to understand what's going on here, Peter expected that if he aligned himself with God's Messiah and King, then life would go well. He would be successful and that. That's actually a realistic expectation based on the Old Testament. There are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament about how the Messiah would bring peace and he would bring the whole nation together and rule the world. And if you aligned yourself with him, you would share in his kingdom. And so Peter has a reasonable expectation of the success that this should bring. And yet Jesus says, no, Peter, that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to die. And so you are associating yourself. You are connecting yourself with a dead man walking. And and Peter's angry about that. That is not what he signed up for. That's not what he expected to find in life. And so he revolts and he's angry at Jesus for ruining his expectations. So from hero to devil in a couple minutes over unmet expectations, it happens again later in Peter's life, actually at the end of Jesus's life, on the night Jesus was betrayed, John 18. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers, a large group of Roman soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Now, now, this is, it's a high point in Peter's life in the sense of, look at that bravery. There's a lot you probably, probably don't know here. You, you have Jesus and his disciples, none of whom are trained soldiers. And they have like maybe one or two swords. That's it. And then you have a, a whole Roman detachment. It appears to have been a cohort size, a very large group of trained professional soldiers in armor with heavy weapons show up. And Peter sees that. And what does Peter do? He gets courageous. He gets brave. If, if the Messiah is going down, I'm going down with him. I'm going to fight for Jesus. And so he takes the one sword he has and he strikes out. So you have this incredible bravery followed by incredible cowardice. Next verse, John 18, 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus breaks Peter's expectations. It was reasonable for Peter to think that when the Messiah is challenged, if I stand with him and fight, we will win because no one can conquer the Messiah according to the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says, no, Peter. Your your expectations, they might have been reasonable, but they're not right. Because God the Father has called us not to win in this moment, but to lose. Are you willing to lose with me? Are you willing to suffer with me? Because that's what's going to happen now. Well, let's see. Turn in Matthew. If you're still in Matthew, turn to the right a little bit. Let's go towards the end of the story, Matthew 26. Let's see how Peter does after this moment of great bravery when Jesus then shuts him down and says, no, it's not time to fight. It's time to lose. How does he do? So we're looking at Matthew 26, the end of the chapter. Let's start in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Jesus has already been led to his trial. And a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he'd gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is like 30 minutes after that incredible act of bravery, willing to to take on a whole company of soldiers. Now he cowers in fear before a slave girl. Why? Because of unmet expectations. He expected being with the Messiah, you would win. Instead being with the Messiah, this time you're going to lose, you're going to Suffer because of that. Peter struggled whenever his expectations went unmet. And, and he caved in, in anger. He caved in fear. He caved in sadness. And he ran off weeping. And when reality didn't meet expectations, what you see is that Peter goes from a high point to a crash. Just instantly. Just in moments. And I so identify with Peter in this. I, I I wonder if, as you look at Peter's stories, have you felt those moments before? You felt like life was going your way. You had some expectation that really was a fairly legitimate expectation. It was nothing crazy. And it doesn't get met and you just crash. And you feel incredible sadness. You feel angry. You feel disappointment. That's how I felt in the hospital. As my wife was wheeled away on the, on the rolling bed down to the ICU and I'm left with two crying kids, I felt this. I felt anger, I felt intense fear, I felt incredible sadness because an expectation I had was dying. God was putting to death that legitimate expectation. Life wasn't working out as I thought. And so I feel all this sadness and and all this anger and all this this anxiety, which are normal things. You can't control those emotions. All humans are going to feel those emotions when life is crashing around you. I felt those emotions, and then I was tempted to hold on to them. And that's really where the choice came. You can't help how you feel in the moment, but are you going to hold on to it? I was tempted to hold on to my anger and disappointment that my becoming a father for the first time moment didn't work out like I thought. I was tempted to hold on to it and let it grow into bitterness. And that is what so many people do. That is the trap of middle age. So many people around us, when life doesn't work out like they expected... When reality falls short of expectations, they feel sadness, anger about that. You can't help those emotions, but then they cling to those. And they let that become bitterness in their life. That's the resentment trap. You see it so often in the lives of the people that we live around. So life falls short of expectations. That's going to happen for everyone. That's just part of being human. Then you're going to feel anger and or sadness. And again, that's going to happen to everyone. You can't help but feel anger or sadness when life doesn't work out like you hoped. Those emotions are okay. But then you you choose to hold on to those feelings. That's where it goes bad on you. You choose to own those and live in those and replay those in your mind. And over time, they're going to grow into bitterness, resentment, and hatred. That's going to isolate you from other people and cut you off from the Lord. I had a a relative, she's passed away now, and for a long period in her life, she had allowed herself to fall into the resentment trap. Life didn't work out like she hoped, and, and she had very reasonable expectations of what life would be. They weren't crazy, they weren't over the moon, they were normal, legitimate expectations, but reality didn't live up to that. And when it didn't, she felt angry, and she clung to that anger until it turned into bitterness and it isolated her from other people and it prevented her from enjoying life with the people around her. I thank God that later in her life she turned it around. She did. She came back to Jesus. She turned that around. She began to feel joy again. But I grieve those lost years in the middle when she clung to that anger and sadness of unmet expectations. That's exactly what will happen to you if you cling to those emotions of anger and frustration, and sadness on unmet expectations, it will go bad on you. It will rot into bitterness and make you a hateful, isolated person. Peter doesn't do that. And that's really ultimately the reason we're looking at Peter. Peter has these bad moments when reality doesn't live up to expectation, and he responds in anger, responds in sadness, whatever it might be, but he always gets back up. That's the remarkable thing about Peter. He falls often in his story. Lots of falls in Peter's story. That's part of the reason I like writing the book about it because it's very hopeful to us. This is Peter the Apostle. He falls all the time. He always gets back up, he always comes back, he always recovers. I, I love the fact that Peter's best days are after all the days we read about. We're still in the Gospels there. His best days are at Acts. I mean, what a hero. He plants all these churches. He becomes an incredible witness for Jesus. He, he's crucified upside down willingly at the end of his life. What a stud, incredible guy. It all came after these failures. So what is it about Peter that allows him to move forward when life so disappoints him? How does he avoid the resentment trap? Well, I, I don't feel like I have a complete answer to this yet. I, I'm, I've studied Peter a long time. I still don't understand what all was going on there. But I, I think I've come to the root. I, I think I've found what is the, the, the core thing in Peter that kept him moving forward even after life disappointed him so that his best days were after these days. I think the core of it is that no matter how much life fell short of his expectations, Peter never gave up on Jesus. That, that's the root of it. He never gave up on Jesus. So right after the passage in Matthew 16 that we read where Peter publicly called him Satan, I mean, I'd be kind of tempted to walk at that point. Really? Really? I've given up everything to follow you, the Messiah, who's going to die, and, and you're going to call me Satan for that? All right, I'm, I'm done. Back to fishing. No, he doesn't do that. Matthew 17, 1. six days later, so six days after that Hard conversation. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Peter's still there. He didn't take a week's vacation. But he's still there with Jesus. He clings to Jesus even when Jesus totally disappoints him and confronts him. Same thing after Jesus died. After Peter betrayed Jesus and Jesus went to the cross and, and Peter betrays him and runs off into the woods crying, Peter is still there when Jesus rises from the dead. Three days later, when when the women see Jesus and run to get the apostles, who's the first person they run into? Peter. He didn't run away. He didn't give up even though his Messiah was crucified. Even though he fell in incredible cowardice, he stayed near Jesus. You you actually get to see what's going on in Peter's head that kept him clinging to Jesus even when the Jesus story so disappointed him, even when life so disappointed him. You you can see it in an amazing account in John chapter 6. So it actually came before the accounts that we've studied so far today. There's another account where Jesus does something that really disappoints Peter, but you get to hear what's going through Peter's mind. So there's this moment in John chapter 6 when Jesus does a very Jesus thing. Um, he's performed all these incredible miracles and, and collected a massive crowd. His popularity is reaching a peak in John 6. So there's all these people fascinated by Jesus. They, they want to follow Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? Every time he gets popular, he starts teaching crazy stuff. That's what he does. And so he teaches this crazy stuff. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. What? (laughs) The Jews freak out about that. What are you talking about? Eat your flesh, drink your blood? Now, we know from later revelation, which they didn't have at the time, we know from later revelation that he was speaking metaphorically, that he would die on the cross, that he would sacrifice his body and blood, literally, and that to be saved in faith, we would have to partake of him. To be our savior. That's where he's going, but they didn't know that yet. And that's so crazy that it tells us, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? What are you doing, Jesus? And so what is Jesus going to do? Well, he's going to double down. Because again, that's what Jesus says. Whenever he's popular, he doubles down on crazy teaching. And so he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. He goes to predestination. There's nothing more controversial than that. There's nothing more difficult than the theology of election. But Jesus goes right there. And the result is instant. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. And we're not walking with him anymore. Now, if he's going to teach crazy stuff, we're out of here. We're expecting Messiah who teaches stuff that we're comfortable with. We're expecting a Messiah who who reinforces our beliefs and expectations. When he goes off and does crazy stuff, we're not interested. So a whole bunch of the crowd leaves at this point. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Do you want to check out at this point? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's so much packed into what Peter just said there. To, to whom shall we go? His point is, Jesus, there's nowhere else to go for words of life. Peter was old enough to know. All those other religions in the world, they don't have words of life to offer us. They're empty. And all the pleasures of this world and the pursuits of this world, they might be fun for a bit, but they're empty in the end. They don't give us life Jesus, you're the only place where we find life. And so Peter clings to Jesus. Even when life deeply disappoints him, he never leaves because he understood Jesus is the only place where I can find life. He is the only place where where I can find hope and joy and love that will not disappoint. He is the only answer for me. And so Peter clung to Jesus. He never let himself fall into the resentment trap. Even when he blew it, he came back to Jesus. He was restored to Jesus because he knew there was nowhere else to go. I think there's a lot of Christians who have a mistaken belief about what the Christian life will be like. There's a whole lot of Christians, especially younger Christians, it's like college-age Christians, recently out of college-age Christians, who think that, that the Christian life, the normal Christian life, is about constant growth. You're always learning more, you're growing more mature, more wise, it's always an upward path of growth and maturity and, and development. Well, that's sometimes going to be the case. But sometimes the normal Christian life is just going to be clinging desperately to Jesus when everything wants to pull you away. It's not going to be about growth and progress. It's just going to be about not letting go when your life doesn't live up to what you expected. Peter is an incredible example of that. He would not let go. He tenaciously held on. So back to my experience in the hospital when my kids were born. And is rolled away to ICU. And, and everything I expected about becoming a father has failed. God has just allowed that that legitimate expectation in my life to die. Well, I I felt a lot of sadness, and I felt some anger and a lot of fear in that moment. And all those emotions are okay. Again, you're human. You cannot control those emotions. You're going to feel them. But then I had a choice. As the days passed, and weeks passed, and months passed, and years passed, and I look back at that loss in my life, that expectation that didn't come true, I have a choice. Will I cling to the anger that God failed me in that moment? Or will I cling to Jesus and believe that even though I don't know why he allowed that expectation to die, somehow he still is a source of true life. That, that's the choice that you face. So as you go through this life, you will have many moments when a legitimate expectation dies. When life doesn't live up, to what you thought it would, whether in the world of relationships or career or possessions or health or whatever it might be. You're going to have some legitimate expectation and life is going to fall short. You will feel sad. You'll feel angry. You may feel fear. Can't help that. That's all okay. But then as the days pass, you face a choice. Are you going to cling to that anger, that sadness, that disappointment, and let it go bad on you? Let it turn into bitterness and resentment against God and others. Or are you going to cling to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know why you allowed this in my life. I don't like this, that you allowed it in my life. But I believe that there is no other source of life than you. I believe that in the end, I will find true satisfaction and joy and peace in you alone. And so like Peter, I'm never letting go. That's the choice you face when life disappoints you, as it will. When I was thinking about this message, thinking about who's living this out today, one of the groups of people that comes to my mind are our missionaries that our church has sent out, particularly those who we've sent to hard places. I'm excited this morning you're going to get to hear from a good friend of mine, David Showalter, who to me is, I'm going to make him feel uncomfortable, an example of Peter. Because David and and his wife, Janet, they do missions in Italy. The deal is, I think for a lot of us, when we think of the life of a missionary, for some of us, it brings thoughts of excitement and adventure. Like you get to go to this foreign land and and meet people who don't know Jesus, and you get to share Jesus with them, and you're going to see the Spirit do incredible things, and it's going to be this amazing, exciting, adventurous life as God's kingdom moves. Well, it does sometimes work out that way, sometimes in some places, but it's rarely Europe. Europe is incredibly dark. It's post-Christian. Been there, done that, not interested. It's incredibly hard soil. Julie and I had the chance to visit David many years ago in, in his missions when they were in Milan, Italy. and I remember him talking about, like, it takes five to seven years of relationship with an Italian person before you even get into good spiritual conversations. And even though you have no guarantees. And so what is it that that creates a missionary that lasts on a field as hard as Europe? It's Peter, it's this principle of when your expectations of what ministry and kingdom work will be fail. When your expectations are put to death on the hard soil of Europe, you stay clinging to Jesus. Say so somehow he's got words of life, even for people as dark as this. And so David continued to cling to Jesus. Jana continued to cling to Jesus. To Jesus, And they've now seen some results in Italy, which is amazing, but they didn't happen overnight. It took years and years of plowing those fields. And many came before David, plowing those, those incredibly hard fields. Disappointed year after year with the meager fruit, and yet choosing to never let go of Jesus out of belief that he alone has the words of life. So I I want you to have a chance to hear from David, learn from his example, so that we can walk more like Peter. If you guys want to come on up.
1: Good morning. We have a lot of uh, exciting opportunities to talk about uh, what God is doing around uh, around the world, and Blake, you know, it's uh, you. You preach to an audience. You also preach to pastors and missionaries too. This morning uh, just brought back lots of, of memories for me, and I know just issues that as is, as uh, David and Jana have served overseas as well. Uh, why are we there? Who are we there for? And ultimately, truly, who do we believe in that is doing the work of building God's kingdom? And uh, so I want to inter- introduce you guys to David Showalter, uh, one of our own, uh, both Aggie and uh, and uh, from Grace Bible Church. Uh, he and his wife Jan have been overseas a couple of different times, but this last uh, this last time here for about eight years. And so, David, why don't you just tell us a, a little bit, uh, kind of where you guys are serving uh, and where uh, uh, what it is that you guys are kind of doing? You can introduce your family to us as well.
2: Sure. First and foremost, I just want to say thank you. Uh, the Lord cast a missions vision for me at Grace, and uh, we're just grateful for the way Grace has followed us and supported us and prayed for us. So I wanted to start with that. This is my family, um, Jana and Lucas and Sophia and Jack now. Um, the, uh, the next picture is a... This was, this was the scary beginnings. <laughs> I wanted to throw that in so you could see uh, the contrast. The Lord has blessed our family. Um, But we are serving in Sesto Calenda, Italy, which is uh, up in the northern part near Milan. And one of the things that we've seen over and over again with Italy is that it is a land of contrasts and contradictions. So this next picture, I think, is the one of our little town. Beautiful place, right? And many of you have been to Italy. You've seen the beauty, the physical beauty, the amazing food. But on the dark underbelly, on the other side, if you spend a little extra time, you discover that Italy is a spiritual graveyard. Uh, about 1% of modern Italians have faith in Christ, and Christ alone. So 99% of the people we come in contact with don't know Jesus personally. They know religion. There's a lot of religion in Italy, but very few have faith alone in Christ alone. And so we feel like... One of the biggest oppositions is they're inoculated. They feel like they've done the right things. They're right with God. By by virtue of a few things, they've checked some boxes within the Catholic Church. Um, We even see how Satan is deceived using Mary. Um, Culturally, Italians, you think of kind of the, the macho Italian male, right? Actually, it's mom or his wife that's really running the show. Okay, There are a lot of mama's boys in Italy... And Satan has capitalized on this. Who do you go to if you want something from Dad? You go to Mom. So spiritually speaking, Italians think that Mary's the approachable one. I can get in with the Father if I approach Mary, if I pray to Mary. We know that Jesus is the sole mediator between God and man. But that's how Satan has deceived a whole population using a cultural thing. So speaking to what you're talking about... um, Robbie Roberts told me once, he said, you need to have a high view of the sovereignty of God if you want to serve in Western Europe. And it is. It's slow, slow fruit. Um, the neat thing is God is at work. Uh, and our little church plant is, uh, is an outcropping, a daughter church, if you will, of the church plant that Robbie and Rose planted years ago in Milan that now is in Italian hands and is thriving. Um, so our little group is, is just, just an outflow of that. And God's been at work uh, in a powerful way there. Um, we're just a little daughter church. Um, the Lord has allowed us to, to plant a second uh, international church that meets. They meet in alternate times, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Um, and we've seen mainly that ministry is just living life on life, loving people with the love of Christ. And it does typically take five to seven years before the doors begin to open. They have to see Jesus lived in the life of a believer. Maybe it's at work. Uh, maybe it's in the context of, of school relationships. And they begin to see the love of Christ come out. And then they begin to ask questions. What, what's different about you? What, what's different in your life? And then when they go through a crisis, they usually will come to that believer and say, I, I'm struggling. Help me. And then the doors begin to open uh, for the gospel. So why don't you walk us through a couple of the pictures of uh, yeah. your church? The second one, this is the new worship center here. Um, this is kind of the, the second generation. We had a place that fit about 50 or so, and the Lord opened doors for us to grow a bit. And uh, now we can fit around 100, and there's a lot more Sunday school space. Um, so it's exciting to see the, the Italian church plan itself uh, grow. We're probably 50 or 60 now, which is a good-sized church in Italy. Churches are very, very small uh, by nature. Um, this is probably one more, one more shot.
1: That's great. Well, David, tell us a little bit, as you and Jana, you kind of, uh, maybe like Peter, the, the sermon this morning, you went to Italy with some high hopes, uh, maybe some unreal expectations. Mm-hmm. What, both on uh, the positive and the negative side, what have you and your family kind of been, um, So, su- what have you been surprised by uh, mm-hmm. as you've seen God's gracious provision in y'all's lives?
2: I would say we've been surprised mostly by the darkness, just not realizing the different ways that it affects us. Um, there'll be days when we're confused, and we, we can't really explain it. Uh, so there's a, there's a tangible... Maybe you've landed in Italy, and you felt there's a tangible darkness there. But on the other side, God is working in creative ways, and we've been surprised by the avenues that he's given us to share the gospel, the avenues he's opened and the doors he's opened uh, to present the gospel. One has recently uh, been in the local high school... Um, We had a contact through one of my colleagues that allowed us to go in and teach conversational English in the local high school. All of the English classes, we would get to go in and and do conversational English with them. And we found that um, over the years, we kind of asked ourselves, Okay, God, we're serving the community in your name. We're loving them in Christ's name. But what are you doing? Like, is there any fruit that's going to come out of this? And about two years ago, we found out um, there's a girl named Stelina that was in my colleague's class years and years ago. And she uh, she enjoyed the class and got to know Terrence, my colleague, and didn't see him for a couple of years. And in that time, the Lord began working on her heart. She studied uh, English literature in a class that had some Bible passages. So she actually requested a Bible off of our church's website. We sent her a Bible. And then she bumped into Terrence again about a year or so ago in the classroom. And they were talking. And she said, so you're a pastor of an evangelical church. Do you have, like... A youth group? He was like, yeah. She said, could I come? He was like, yeah. (laughs) So she shows up on a Friday night, and then she goes to the Italian service on Saturday night, and then the English service on Sunday morning, and she never stopped coming. And we couldn't explain it. She just loved the fellowship. She loved the love of Christ that she saw there. And she came to a point, and she said to us, even if I don't ever trust in Jesus, because she'd heard the gospel many times from each of us, Can I still come? Sure. You're not obligated to trust Jesus. But about six months later, we kept praying and praying. She came to us and said, I trusted him. She made that step. And she's been baptized, and she's walking with the Lord. She's being discipled now. But just an example of how we didn't have a clue what God was going to do through teaching English in the local high school. But God's been at work. He was quietly working all along. And he surprised us. That's
1: great. Well, tell us, you know, as uh, many of you know, we have a lot of different missionary uh, families out on the field. Uh, We're approaching 100 different, uh, we call them missionary units, uh, whether they're single or married. Uh, Probably this year sometime we'll we'll hit 100 units that we support across many fields. But for for you guys, for the Lucers that are uh, on your team, uh, how is it that Grace Bible Church can continue to be of any help, of any encouragement, uh, so that you guys kind of feel like you're an extension uh, of the church that sent you. Mm-hmm. Please, please
2: pray. The darkness and the battle mainly is a spiritual one. And so we know that prayer is, is powerful. And so would you pray for us? Pray that the God would, would break the darkness, break the strongholds that are in Italy, and open the floodgates for the gospel there. And we're beginning to see some things happen, and we know that people are praying. Secondly, come and join us um, This ministry with the the English as a
1: second language... I'm going to put this one back up as you say, come and join us. (laughs) Come and join us.
2: The food is good. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, uh, we've got... Most of us that are doing the English are involved in the local church. And it's great, but we would love to have a team of interns that could help us. So if you've got an ESL background, we would love to have you come for three months, six months, a year, two years commit your life. Um, God is working through this ministry and we'd love to have some fresh uh, faces and some fresh hearts to work with us
1: in that same ministry. What a beautiful segue. Just to let you guys know, we've been talking uh, with uh, David and his team and uh, we're actually going to send what we call a care trip there next summer. And so you guys have a whole year to think about whether or not you would uh, be willing to go. I promise you're not going to just be sitting here looking at this picture. Uh, they're going to put you to work uh, doing some things, but we uh, every summer we send out a, a few care trips to our uh, existing uh, supported missionaries. And uh, so out of our congregation, we would love, as a matter of fact, we, we just had a, a team come back uh, from another uh, place in, uh, in Italy doing a care trip, but next summer uh, we're going to send a, a trip over. Uh, and if you really feel like the Lord is doing something to bring an interest in either serving short-term or long-term. You don't just have to buy the ticket and go over. As a church, we have uh, a whole uh, preparation uh, pathway for you guys. And so uh, we've invited uh, David to stand out uh, at our nation's wall uh, after the service. And if you have just general questions about what's happening in Europe, uh, interest in Italy in particular, uh, or feel like the Lord is just prompting you to ask more questions about next summer or a longer, uh, a longer term than that. That I want to invite you to go over, grab one of his information cards so that you know how to pray and continue to, uh, to be able to do that. So just pray that God has continued to work, uh, in, in your hearts because we all, we all have a responsibility for the Great Commission, uh, in serving in many ways. Uh, until the Lord Jesus comes again. So let me pray for us as we close our service and pray for David too. Father, thank you for the show, Walters. Thank you for their endless years uh, of service there to learn a language, uh, to uh, to wade through the darkness. Uh, Father, to be a great light, uh, and it happens just like it should happen with us here. Uh, Father, as we speak words, uh, as we tell stories uh, from the Bible, as we uh, apply uh in front of people, our own relationship with you, as we step out boldly to turn those moments of crisis into gospel opportunities, uh, Father, we pray that you would not only bless uh, what's happening here, but Father, that you would turn a whole country uh, on its head. Father, that they would um, continue, Father, to to not just seek pleasure, but Father, that they would seek the peace and the joy and the salvation that only comes through. Uh, a relationship with you. Father, that people could, in their minds, put aside uh, just their experience of religion so that they can know you personally. And we pray this, uh, Father, that you would give them great success, see incredible and surprising fruit, uh, Father, as they labor for you day by day and trust in you for all the work that happens. Father, thanks for our time together as we worship and pray that uh, that our lives would be changed as we walk out the door. Help us to be great missionaries for you, both here and abroad. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all are dismissed. Thank you for coming.